Goliath never had a chance. When he saw that young shepherd boy coming down into the valley of Elah from the other opposite side of the ridge where the Israelite army was encamped, from the opposite side where the Philistine army was, was stationed, Goliath should have turned and run the other way. He should have called all of the Philistines, all of the others who were there with him, and just gotten as far away from the Israelite army, especially that young shepherd boy named David, as quickly as they, and as fast as they possibly could have. Are you surprised by that, that uh, interpretation of this story? I, I read it in Malcolm Gladwell's book titled, David and Goliath. He insists that Goliath was the underdog, that the scene of the battle was totally set up for David to be victorious. Now, yes, Goliath was tall and strong and heavily armored from head to toe. His shield was so large, he had to have a shield bearer carry it for him down into the valley and to place it there. David, the young shepherd boy, looked nothing like that at all, of course. Yet he held the advantage, speed, Accuracy, quickness, youth, all were on his side. If you look at it from his perspective, he was prepared to easily and quickly defeat the giant. Uh, what I want us to do this morning is look more carefully at the story of David and Goliath, this ancient tale from our own biblical word, as a way for us to find some lessons in our own lives and how we might face some of the gigantic battles that are, that are before us. So consider the setting. The Philistines, they are seafaring people. They migrated over from the island of Crete. They're, they've settled on the coast of Palestine, there right next to the Mediterranean Sea. They are trying and attempting to attack King Saul and the Israelites. All the Israelites spend most of their time up in the mountainous area of Palestine. The Philistines want to divide them, and by doing that, they will conquer them, weaken them, make them, make them unable to fight. As I said, the two armies are faced off. They're in the Valley of Elah. You can go there to this day, that very same place, and see the ridges on opposite side. On one side is the Israelite army. On the other is the Philistine army. And basically, they're at an impasse. Because if one army rushes down the side of the ridge, out into the valley, and then rushes up to attack the other one, they're just sitting ducks, basically. The, other, the opposing army just has to stand there on the other side of the ridge and just wipe them out as they come up. So neither army wants to move. Both armies know that they're stuck, and it's a dangerous situation. Goliath, however, he's too impatient to wait. He wanders down into the valley, brings his shield bearer with him, and he starts calling to the Israelites on the other side, on the, up on the ridge, taunting them, making fun of them, calling them names. You can read the story in the Bible. It's actually one of the better stories to read. He's, he's just saying everything he possibly can to, to upset them. And there he is, in full battle gear, like I said, covered head to toe, looking, frankly, unbeatable. I mean, he really is set up for a hand-to-hand -hand combat, one-on-one, -on -one, in close like this. That armor is heavy and strong, almost impenetrable. He has three or four different weapons. One of them is a short spear, a large club-like handle with a long blade, designed perfectly for fighting someone in tight like this. It looks to the Israelites as though there's nothing, nothing they can do because he's flaunting himself. He's calling them out. Come on, send a champion. By the way, historians have noted that in antiquity, it was not unusual for something like this to happen. Two, two, two armies at an impasse, neither one able to gain advantage, and so then two champions would be chosen from each army, sent out to do battle in the midst of the battlefield, with the winner declaring the, champion, the, the victory for his own army. 
That's what's happening here in this, in this setting. Well, then in the middle of this scene, the young shepherd David arrives at the battle scene. He's been sent by his mother with bread and cheese. He was too young to be in the battle. He was too young to fight. He was at home taking care of the sheep, keeping them safe. His mother realized his brothers might be running out of food, so he says to, she says to him, take, them, take your brothers some, some bread, some cheese, a, a little wine to help them out. Now, now note this. Here's where I want to pause. Note this. David didn't wake up that morning saying, today I'm taking on battle, uh, giants. Today I'm going to do battle with the biggest and the toughest and the strongest. Today I'm going to save my people. I'm going to be a hero. He didn't do any of that. What did he do? He said yes when he was given the menial task of carrying the bread and the cheese to the battle to feed his brothers. Perhaps we miss the glory and the greatness that we want or desire when we fail to do the simple, menial, everyday tasks that sometimes are put in front of you. Perhaps we believe in some ways that those menial tasks are beneath us. I can tell you, preachers too often think this way too. We too often get stuck in thinking that somehow because we've got on the robes and the stoles and a degree in the wall that we've raised up to a certain level. It's always important to remember. Rob Bell, the great, great preacher Rob Bell, once spoke to a crowd of about two or 3,000 in a large arena. Afterwards, he was in the, the lobby of the arena signing books when somebody, a young man, about 23, 24, came by and said, uh, Pastor Rob, I want to do what you do. Really, what is it that I do? You speak to thousands. Can you help me speak to thousands too? He said, you want to do that? Then you start by speaking to anyone who will listen. There's great truth there, isn't there? For, for ten, every 10 bad sermons I've preached, there might have been one good one that developed as a result of that, of just going forward and trying and trying and trying again. In fact, I truly did learn this lesson in seminary. A, a buddy of mine named John was a pastor of a little church in the mountain in the hills of, of Tennessee. He called me up and said, Glenn, I'm going to be gone on vacation this weekend. I got somebody preaching for me on Sunday morning. Can you preach on Sunday night? If you grew up in, the, in, the, in a church in the mountains of Tennessee, you go to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday evening, and you better show up for the potluck on Saturday too. Anyway, he asked me to cover him for the, the Sunday night service. I said, great, I'd be happy to. And he said, by the way, there's a $25 honorarium. Like, yes, $25. Back in those days when I was in seminary, that was a huge amount of money. It would buy a lot of bread and cheese. Well, Sunday comes, and a huge blizzard takes over the mountains. I mean, it's terrible. I lived like maybe 15 minutes away from my buddy's church. It took me 45 minutes in this blinding snowstorm to get there. I walked into the sanctuary. The service had just started. I got up in the pulpit, and there were exactly four people on the front row and three on the second row. Well, it didn't matter. I had my notes. I had my sermon. I was ready to go. And so I just began delivering the sermon. And I, I, I got away from my notes, and I just started going off, off from memory. And it was going along fine until I realized I have no idea where I am in the sermon. And so I just kept kind of flying that plane around, circling around, try, <laughs> trying to find some place to land, some place, to, some direction to go. I just started going to everything I knew. Let me share with you about Adam and Eve. And consider Noah. And, Moses was a, an important prophet, and Jesus too, also, and just flying around like this forever. Finally, this good old boy in the front row right here just says, son, I believe you're done now. <laughs> that might be the best ending to a sermon I've ever had. You see, isn't it true that, that sometimes it's, it's in the willingness to get out there and put ourselves out in, in the simplest of tasks, 
and to, to work to hone our craft, to work at it over and over and over again until we finally begin to see some semblance of something that will work. But sometimes we, we don't get the chance to defeat giants in our lives because we don't want to deliver the bread. We don't want to bring the cheese. I was in a pastor's group a few years ago, about three years ago in Kansas City. We were involved in some project there in the northeast part of that, of that area. A bunch of pastors, one of them, brilliant guy, 31, 32, PhD in history, ordained, doing a good job in his church. But he was assigned to bring the food for the meal for the homeless. This is an exact quote as he's walking out of our meeting. I got a PhD in history to bring the food. A year later, he was out of the ministry. You see, the, the, chance, the chance to do something in this world that's amazing and strong most likely begins in the willingness to give ourselves to the smallest of tasks. Rob Bell said, you want to conquer giants? Bring the bread and cheese first. Well, back to our story. David arrives with the food for his brothers, but he overhears Goliath down in the, in the valley taunting his, 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 his fellow soldiers taunting his brothers and the rest of the Israelite army. And he's kind of infuriated by it. And he goes to the king, he goes to King Saul and says, my Lord, I, I'll take this, this giant on. I can't believe no one has ta- challenged him yet. How can we stand up here on this hill and listen to him saying all these terrible things to us and, and our, about our God? I will take him on. So Saul has no other choice. He brings his helmet, puts it on his head, on David's head, covers him with the, all of his, uh, his armor, gives him his sword. David can barely lift the sword, it's so large. The helmet sits comically down on his shoulders. It's a big, gigantic helmet. He can't even hardly see out of the helmet. David takes all of it off and says, I don't need any of this. I have a sling and five stones. I'll take on this giant. I'll take him on. The moment he decided to do that, the battle was his. The victory was won. Goliath may have been six foot nine, six feet ten inches tall, but because of that height, he may have also had a a disease that caused him to grow and also took away his eyesight, made him very almost almost legally blind, we would say today. In fact, there's even a line in the story about uh, David and Goliath where you can feel David or Goliath squinting at David as he's coming at him. He's looking at him with this sling and he's saying, you're coming at me with sticks? He can't even see what it is that that David holds in his hand. So here's Goliath huge, strong. He looks impenetrable, but in reality, he can barely see, and because he's so heavy-weighted, he can't move at all. David, young, quick, fast, agile, a weapon that actually, according to historians, was as powerful and short range as a 45 handgun. David had everything on his side. He recognizes his advantage. He takes him down. In fact, by the way, according to Gladwell's research, Malcolm Gladwell's research, in antiquity, the slingers were the keys often to the victory in battle. Not the chariots, not the spears, not the bowmen, but the ones with the slings because they were so accurate and so powerful, so deadly, they could turn the battle toward victory for their side. That's exactly what happened. You see, what happened when King Saul looked at this situation, he could only see the problem through the eyes of the past. David came with a new angle, with a new way of seeing, and took down the giant. I wonder, 
Are there any gigantic battles in your life? Anything right now that anything right now that you're facing that seems overwhelming, overpowering, un, unbeatable. You know, I I've been here about 14 months now, and I know a lot more stories in the chairs and the in the pews. Uh, I led a funeral last Thursday. A week before, I had someone in my office talking about a terrible disease. A week before that, I had at least three different persons who came to talk about an impending divorce. Death, disease, divorce, these are major battles. I know that there are so many of us that have all kinds of issues we're facing and dealing with in family, at work, at school, at home. Is there, is there some new angle that you need in order to see that you're already gifted through the power of the God who loves us with more than enough to take them on. Listen to the words of Richard Rohr. The most courageous thing we will ever do is to bear humbly the mystery of our own reality. Do you hear the beauty of his words? The most courageous thing we'll ever do is bear the mystery of our own reality, of accepting who we are. In my wedding ceremony, ceremony, I always say to the couple, the finest gift you could ever give or receive is the unique and marvelous person that God created you to be. Never be afraid to both give and receive that as the finest of gifts. Sometimes all we need to take on whatever is in front of us are the unique skills and gifts that God has blessed us with, that every one of us has in one form or another. And when we can reframe it and look at it with a new angle, we can suddenly take down giants. I, I want to know this morning, and this is, a, this is probably a question you have not ever been asked, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How, raise your hand. How many of you are Star Trek TV fans? No one. Oh, six, seven, eight, or nine. There's, oh, there's a few more. All the choir. Are there any choir? There's a few in the choir too. Good, good. Remember Captain Kirk? James T. Kirk from the original TV show back in the 60s. There was a backstory to his story called the Kobayashi Maru test. In the Kobayashi Maru, they took all the, the officers' candidates and gave them this test. It was a battle simulator. What they didn't tell them going in was, there's no way you can win. You're going to, you're going to be destroyed. In simulation, you're going to be destroyed. All of your crew will be killed. It was a way for those evaluating the officers' candidates to see how they handle a, an unbelievably terrible and devastating situation. Well, of course, the future Captain Kirk wasn't going to lose. He figured out a way to get into the computer program of the academy and shift it and change it around to where he could beat it. He ended up getting a commendation for skill and, and, and intelligence. I, I love that story. I know it's from TV, but I love the way it illustrates the idea that sometimes what we truly need to do is find a new way to get into the system or the program or the computer or the family or the disease or the relationship so that we can find it and discover a way to move forward in faith and courage. Too often though, too often we let Two words block us. John Ortberg, a good pastor, says it's the what if question. What if? Have you ever asked that? What if? What if? And then we create this entire long concern of problems. Well, what if? Oh boy, yeah, what if that happens? Well, then this and this and the next thing you know, we're frozen. We're stuck by worry and anxiety. My, my, my little brother, David, was a great athlete. 
in, in high school, all-star basketball player, made all-state in basketball, was an all-conference player in junior college, ended up going to uh, University of Alaska at Anchorage and playing for uh, the Seawolves there, a Division II team, a strong team in, in Division II. In fact, his first year on that team at Alaska Anchorage, they played the University of Michigan in a preseason tournament. This Michigan team had five future NBA players. They would go on to win the national championship in, in that season, but my brother's Division II Alaska Anchorage team, they beat them in a preseason tournament. I thought beating Michigan would get a little bit of a cheer. <laughs> Jim, it was delayed. Uh, and some applause, yes, thank you very much. My brother's gonna visit us someday and he can tell you every moment of that game if you'd like to hear about how well it went, went for him. <clears throat> but here's my brother, so he's a great athlete, he's tall, he's handsome, he's, he's six foot seven, he's handsome, he's charming, he's smart, he's, well, whatever. Here's what I really want you to know. He's afraid of sharks. He won't go in the ocean. He lives in Southern California, not far from the beach, and he won't go in past his ankles into the water. I said, Dave, when you drive in your car to the beach, you're a hundred times more likely to die in a car wreck than to even encounter a shark in the water. He says, here's what I know, brother. I don't go in the water, and so far, I've not been attacked by a shark. By the way, he, he told me I could tell that story because he, he watches online. Whichever camera I'm on, I don't know, but he watches online every, every Sunday. You see, John Rotberg is the one who says that worry kills courage because we ask that question, what if? When in fact, that what if question is no big deal. What if you wreck your car? Get a new one. What if you lose your wallet? Get a new one. What if your senior minister preaches a bad sermon? <laughs> you send him on sabbatical to Hawaii. <laughs> Just so we're clear. The courage to be who we are, to face our giants, whatever they may be, finally gives us the courage we need to be vulnerable enough to face and name our failures, our weaknesses, our worries, our anxieties, and all the rest, you know that David will eventually become the great king of Israel. The Bible will say that David had a heart after God's own heart. He will be a, a brilliant politician, an amazing military tactician. He'll win more underdog battles than any other king after him. And yet at the same time, Sometimes because of his own stupid mistakes. Sometimes because his family just behaves strangely. He'll be overwhelmed with worry, fear, and anxiety. According to tradition, the psalm you heard earlier in the service, Psalm 27, was written by David. Can't prove it one way or another, but I like the fact that the tradition thinks that David wrote this. He begins with that beautiful line, the Lord is my light and my life. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light and my life. Whom shall I fear? It's a bumper sticker verse. It's one you should put on your mirror, have it scroll on your computer, make sure you see it every day. It's a beautiful text, but then you get later into the, into the psalm, the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth verses. All, it begins with all these powerful statements of trust, and then it's as though David himself is caught up in worry and fear and anxiety. He says, but Lord, don't abandon me. But Lord, don't leave me behind. But Lord, don't, don't forget me. Don't, 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 don't abandon. Don't leave. 
You can just fear the, the worry sneaking its way into the poetry. And then it flips back again to a word of trust. I can't prove this, but I believe that what happened in David's mind was he went back to that valley of Elah, that place where he wandered out in front of both armies and with the courage of heaven, without a drop of fear in his heart, took on the day, took on the giant, and emerged victorious. That's why he can conclude by saying, wait, be strong, take courage. This, this poetry is so beautiful and the way it begins in faith, wanders down into fear and concludes again in trust. For the poet to write this, to write this way, he has to be vulnerable enough to name his fear, to confront himself. It's Brene Brown who says, vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they're never weakness. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they are never weakness. Wait. Be strong. Take courage. Because you already have everything you need to face this day and the next until the final day when God wraps God's arms of love around each of us.